In the early days of 1865, President Lincoln had a meeting with his cabinet. It was obvious by this time that the South was going to lose. And one of his cabinet members said, what are you going to do with those rebellious Southerners when they try to come back into the Union? Lincoln thought about that for a minute. He said, I'm going to treat them as if they never left. That's grace. That's grace too. Grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. Love that goes upward is worship. When we're good and bad. <laughs> Sorry. Let's just get this thing fixed for a second. can't hear it, so it defeats the purpose, so <laughs> it's worth it in a second. It's already better. All right. How about now? Much better. Yeah. All right. I think the devil might not want this sermon to be heard. <laughs> and I think the Lord wants it to be preached. What do you think? Yeah, we'll take it. Chapter. 
And then we're going to shift to grace in the church of Jesus Christ. And then we're going to end talking about grace in the lives of us. Personal grace. So let's begin in Luke chapter 1. The word grace is found the first time in the King James Version in Luke 2.40. But that's not the first time the word from which grace is translated is found in the New Testament. The first time is Luke 1.30. The word is charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, charis. It's translated 130 times as grace in King James. But it's used 156 times in the New Testament. It's sometimes six times translated Favor, seven times translated thank, four times translated thanks, plural, two times translated um, beautiful or sentimental, seven times separate words. Now, when you think about grace in the New Testament, it begins in the first section of the New Testament, it goes all the way to the end. It begins. In Luke, which is the, second, the first of four sections in the New Testament, the biographies of Jesus. It's used five times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We'll read those together in, in just a minute. And then it's used ten times in the second book of the New Testament, in the second section, which is the book of Acts, beginning in Acts 4.33. Then it is used, let's see, 114 times uh, in Romans through Jude, the epistle section. And it's used twice in the last book, the prophecy section of the New Testament. Now, what's curious about that, have you read, have you read Revelation lately? If so, you might not have answered this question, but you'd be a good Bible student if you knew the answer to this question without having recently read it. What's the last verse of the Bible say? Praise our Lord Jesus Christ. Good Bible student, that's right. The book of Revelation ends with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, that's not the only book in the New Testament in that way. That particular sentence, statement is found ten times in the New Testament. Eight of them are the last verse of the book of the New Testament. Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, Philemon, and Revelation. Eight books in with the same sentence. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. When we get into that section, we're going to talk about how grace is a part of the church today. But let's focus on the, the grace of Jesus. Life. Go with me to Luke 1. Grace started emanating from Jesus before he was even born. Because in Luke, the first chapter, we have Jesus, we have God asking a young, a young lady, probably about 13 years old. That's when a Jewish girls usually got married at the, at 13 or 14, and she's betrothed to be married to Joseph. Her name is Mary, and God comes, comes to her with a request. So an angel comes from God with a request. The most unusual request in the New Testament. Will you have a baby for me? And Mary says, yes. The handmaid of the Lord. Now let's read 130 where the word charis is first found in the New Testament. And it says... And the angel said unto, her, said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. Jesus was bringing favor even before he came into the world. Now look at 240 of the same book. 
And this is the first time they choose uh, Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus is 12 years old by the time you get to Luke uh, 240. What we have in this section is a very quick pass, passing over of Jesus' early life. His whole childhood is found in this one chapter. Well, from the time he was six weeks old until he was 12 years old, we don't know anything to that. Well, when he was 12, we have one event that occurred, and then we don't know anything again until he was 30 years old, or almost 30 years old. But that event is in Luke 2, and that's when Jesus uh, went up to Jerusalem and talked with the doctors of the law, and he said, I must be about my father's business. Now, in that context, we have some summary statements about how Jesus lived and his character during those uh, silent years. And one of them is Luke 2.40. Now, normally, whenever we talk about grace, we give it the shorthand definition of unmerited favor. And that's a good definition in every other reference in the New Testament, except this one. Because of this one, is merited favor. Let's read it together. And the child grew and waxed with Jesus, and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Jesus did always did the things that pleased his father. He never disappointed him. He deserved the grace of God, but he's the only one. Because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, the ways of sin is death. Romans 6.23, therefore we need the grace of God, all of us, and it's unmerited if we receive it. When we receive it. Now, it's also found in this chapter, the same word, Chris, is found in verse 52. And Jesus increased in favor, uh, in wisdom and stature, in favor. That word favor is the word grace. Jesus grew in grace in those years between 12 and 18 or his manhood. Jesus was growing. He was developing in the grace of his Father. Now, let's go to John and read the other four times the word is translated grace in Mark, Luke, and John. It's not found at all in the book of Matthew. not found at all in the book of Mark. found one time in an English translation in Luke. It's found eight times the word charis is found eight times in Luke. It only translated grace once. But in John, we have the word four times, and they're all grouped right together. Begin reading with me in John 1.14. We're talking about the eternal word who was with God in heaven, the second person of the Godhead, that we know best as Jesus, but in John 1, he's identified as the Word. And it says in verse 14 that the Word became flesh. We call that the incarnation. You know the word carnal referring to the flesh, the body. Incarnation means he became flesh. He became one of us. He was a baby. And then he was a child. And then he was a, a teenager. And then he was an adult. He was... He had like passions as we, as we have. He never acted on sinful passions, but he had the blood of Abraham coursing through his veins. He was tempted in all parts like as we are yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15. So Jesus was a man. He dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Now, most of the time he wore a mask. He came into his own zone. You are not. <laughs> I mean, the Son of God was in their village and they didn't know He was there. The one who made the world was walking around in it and they had no idea the architect of all creation was, was down the street and building a house for somebody. He came in His own, His own. You're not, you see, you're not. 
But once in a while, mask came off. For instance, in Luke 9 and Matthew 7, 17, what we call the transfiguration, Jesus took his disciples out at night, three of them up in the mountain, and he was transfigured before them. And he, his countenance shone so white, so bright, as no fuller on earth could, could make clothes that white as his were glowing. And there appeared to him Moses and Elijah. The mask came off that night, and they got to see him. Now, there were flashes of it when he stilled the storm, when he raised Lazarus, when he touched the leper, and the leper became whole. When, you know, when it worked all the wonderful miracles, they knew someone wonderful was walking among them, but he was disguised as a man. He lived as one of us. And they were able to either accept him and follow him, or he allowed them to reject him and disbelieve him. Because we are creatures of volition, he gives us that choice. So, he, he dwelt among us, but what kind of character did he have? Full of grace. And truth. If you rounded a corner and ran into somebody carrying a cup, what would be spilled out of the cup? It's going to one huh? I mean, if it's a coffee cup, what's, what's being spilled? Coffee. If it's a tea glass, it's, if it's a child sippy cup, it might be Kool-Aid, right? Or something, but whatever's going, whatever comes out of it is what's in it. Whenever Jesus was spilled, shook, what came out of him? Grace and truth. You see it. When they drove a nail in his hand, Father forgive them and they never did. That's grace. When Martha later and later Mary said, If thou hadst been here, our brother had not died, there's accusation in that word, in that sense. We've gotten here in time, our brother would be alive. They're disappointed, they're frustrated. Jesus did not respond in kind. When they brought the sinful woman before him, caught in adultery, the very act, John 8, he did not condone her sin. He ended it by saying, Go and sin no more, but he salvaged her. He said, Where are your accusers? There's no man can no man will. Neither did I can do it. Go and see him no more. John 8, 11. I'm glad that's in the Bible. Now that might not be my sin. I hope it never is. Not or yours. But you know, you can substitute a different sin in there. And you can put my name in it. And put your name in it. And there's some people that will ride us off and be done with us forever because of that sin. John Jesus. Amen. That's his grace. He demonstrated it toward the sinners who came to the publicans and sinners heard him gladly. You know why? Because he thought they were worth something. He treated them like they were humans. He accepted them even though they were not, their past was checkered. When they were willing to leave it, he was willing for them to leave it. He was willing for them. You know, there's a shift from Old Testament to New Testament. In the Old Testament, the emphasis was on holiness. Holiness has as part of its definition separation. And the reason for that in the Old Testament is that Jews had to be separate people from the Gentiles because it was, there was a promise made to Abraham that of his lineage there would be a Savior born. So they, they couldn't mix with the Gentiles. 
had to be separate. So they were with their clothes, what they ate, their uh, worship. Everything was different from Gentiles in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, the emphasis of the Pharisees was no undesirables alike. Pharisees looked down their noses at publicans and sinners. Jesus shifted the emphasis from no undesirables allowed to there are no undesirables. Everybody's welcome at the table. That's grace. Now, not come as you are and stay as you are. Come as you are and become like me. And there's a lot of difference in that. Now, let's keep reading here in John 1. We see the other three times that it's used in uh, the gospel accounts. Verse 16. And of his fullness that we all receive, we are partakers of his nature. 2 Peter 1 4. And grace for grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth by Jesus Christ. There was grace in the Old Testament. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis 6 8. But there's an emphasis in the New Testament and a fuller explanation of grace than they ever had in the Old Testament. And Jesus brought it. Now, I'm going to give you this really quick to move into the second part of the sermon, but let me give you the points about Jesus and grace. Jesus received grace. We saw that in Luke 2.40. Jesus extended grace. That's where we just read here in John 2.16 and 17. Number three, Jesus taught grace. You might find it curious, I'd be able to first learn this, that there is no word grace in red in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, if you haven't read that about it. What that means is, Jesus is never credited with having said the word grace while on earth. Now, there is one red, one red letter grace in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 and 9, where... Uh, Paul prays for his sword and flesh to be removed, and Jesus responds, From heaven, my grace is sufficient for you. But never on earth. But that is not to say that Jesus did not teach grace. Did you know that we have about 38 parables of Jesus in the New Testament? I say about because there's some that the scholars differ. Is this really a parable or not? You know, sometimes those are one sentence, one sentence parables. And some say, that's a parable. Some say, no, it's just a metaphor. But anyway, it's about 38. Now, of the 38 parables in the New Testament, they're divided into kingdom parables and judgment parables. And you know one of the categories? Grace parables. And there are eight of them. I sit back and run them off. I'm not sure I can. But, uh, I can give you the references for sure. Uh, Matthew 20, the parable of the laborers in the field. Luke 7, the two creditors. Luke 14, the great feast. Luke 15, the lost sheep, coin, son, and elder brother. And Luke 17 would be number 8. And that's uh, <clears throat> the parable of the, un the, the worthless or unworthy servant. Eight parables in my prayer. Jesus taught Christ. Jesus demonstrated grace. We just saw that. And now Jesus offers grace. And at the end, we'll talk about that. And that's what I'm building to. That's what I hope that someone in here or someone in this city will, will, will enjoy grace this week and never have it. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Now let's move into the, 
book of Titus. Go with me to Titus chapter 2. And let's spend some time talking about grace in the church. Grace today. Grace that Jesus is offering right now. Not what he offered when he was here 2,000 years ago. I preached a sermon a while back, but it took me a lot of years for every thought to preach this sermon. I preached on, have you ever heard a sermon on What is Jesus doing, man? You know, we think about what Jesus did, all the things that had normally been done, 89 chapters were. And then he went back and had him sat down around and had thought, so he's just sitting there doing nothing until God says, go get and bring my family home, right? No. <laughs> Did you know that every person who's ever been saved was saved by Jesus Christ? Amen. He's busy saving people all over the world every day. You know, He's our advocate. He's our intercessor. He's the propitiation for our sins. Jesus is busy in heaven. And He's working on our behalf. Still, His grace is operative. Now, in Titus 2, there is one of the great passages of grace in the entire Bible. And we'll begin verse 11. If we have time, we will go down to 14. I may have to cut it off and move on. We'll see how that... i got the fastest clock in the world. <laughs> 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 I've got that thing on steroids or something. <laughs> All right, Titus 2, 11. For the grace of God. That phrase, grace of God, is used 30 times in the New Testament. Doesn't that just make you feel warm and breathing to think about it? Let it just wash... Marinate in your minds and not Jerusalem. The grace of God. That bringeth salvation. Let me give you an outline of this. I got this from Matthew Henry. Uh, of all places. He, he, he was in the 1700s. But his book's still around. Not everything he says is right, but this is good. He said this text teaches three things. I'll give it to you and we'll build on it. What grace brings. That's verse 11, salvation. Then we're going to see what grace teaches. That's verse 12. And then we'll see what grace engenders. And that's hope. We'll, we'll develop those ideas. But I want you to see where we're going. Sometimes it helps to have a map of where you're going so you can see the stops when you get there. So let's do that with verse number 11. Grace of God that brings salvation. That's what grace brings is salvation. There's no greater gift ever been given than salvation. Salvation means that I don't have to be lost and separated from God forever, but I can be God's family with Him, praising Him as the ages roll on. 10,000 years is just a drop in the bucket of eternity, and that's how long we'll be there in the foyer of heaven. Before we even go in, you know, metaphorically speaking, 10,000 years, as we sing with the amazing grace, oh, wouldn't be wonderful. Well, that's what grace brings, salvation. Now, what's involved in salvation? There's a lot. But let's just talk about three things. So, grace brings cleansing. Cleansing. Isaiah 118 says, uh, speaking of sin and being cleansed of sin, they shall be white as snow. There's a crimson tide. There's a there's blood that flows you know, if you had a, I like to wear ties that you can't tell by your ketchup on them, you know? <laughs> but I've gotten ties I've wear before. I said, oh, look at that. There's a stain on that tie. I can't wear that today. You know, you could 
try. I was in the cleaners the other day. There's a cleaners guy from the school, and I, I go in there every week. I got to know the ladies in there. The two that work there were Maureen and Pat, and they're sweet ladies. Not Christian Jeff, I don't think, but we're working. We hope they will be. Anyway, there's a lady came and she was ahead of me. She had a lot of miles. And uh, she said, there's an ink mark right there. Be sure to mark, show, show that to the cleaner. And she smiled and put a pen in there. You know, as soon as she walked out, she said, they won't be able to get that out. <laughs> <laughs> they can't get ink out a lot with that. You know, there's some things you can't get out. There's not a cleanser on earth that can get a sin stain out. Every time I sin, it leaves a mark on the soul. And I can't get to it. Have you ever thought about you are underneath the cross of Jesus and caught a drop of his blood? As powerful as that blood is, it wouldn't do you any good. Because you couldn't put it where it needs to go. It's got to go on the soul. How would you do that? You can't. You can only put it on what? But thankfully, God can put it on the soul. He does. When we are washed in baptism, He applies the blood and so it's in our soul. Now, uh, cleansing. That's the first thing. The second thing, it pays our debt. Matthew 18 talks about a pair of the debtors. We have the one who had 10,000 talent debt. And he begged the king, forgive me. And the king said, okay, I'll forgive you today. And he went out and told the guy that owed him 100 pennies, 15 bucks. He just owed a million dollars. Got 15 bucks. And he said, pay me what I owe. Took him by the throat. He wouldn't forgive him. And the king heard about it. You know that. But the only reason I bring that up is so that we realize which one of those two we are. I'm not a $15 sinner. And you're not either. We're the million dollars. Let me illustrate this way. You may be the perfect driver. I'm not. <laughs> uh, what if a state trooper was assigned to you from the first time you started driving? Every time you pull out your driveway, he pulls out behind you. All the rest of your life, you drive behind you. And every time you go over the speed limit by one, you got your ticket. Every time you forget to stop completely the stop sign, you get a ticket. Every time you didn't turn on your directional when you're making a turn, you get a ticket. Hey, you get the point. <laughs> How many violations would you, would you have over a long time? Well, maybe not as many if you knew he was back there. <laughs> okay. How many times do I sin in my life? And I don't even know it sometimes. You know? Because I don't know I'm supposed to do this, I don't do it. Or I don't know something's wrong and I do it. And sometimes I do it on purpose and I'm. And every one of those has a fine. How tall is it, by the way? I can never pay for that. I can't even pay for one of them. But I surely can't pay for all of them. That's one of the things. And that's what the blood of Christ does. It pays my debt. It also takes my penalty. If I could point to everyone in here to make this personal, that's the way I want, I want us to take this point. If I'm pointing at me, I mean, I'm not accepting, no exception. 
condemned. That's in God's court. Trial. Right. The gavel goes down. Guilty as charged. That's me. Except Jesus stepped in and said, I'll take his place. I'll pay for his crimes. Quit me and sin. That's salvation. That's grace. Let's move to the next one. Unto all men. Um, I drew a line back up to verse 9 to servants and to masters. What's the difference in a servant and a master in the church? No. What's the difference in a servant and a master when they come to the cross? None. There's the circumstances. Circumstances don't matter. The only question that matters is have you seen it? And the, the master's in, the servant's in, they both may be grace. So it appeared to all men. You don't have to be of the elite. But then again, if you are of the elite, are not excluded. You don't, you don't have to be poor. But if you are, the poor are not excluded. He seeks for all of you. Come to me, all ye that labor, and labor, and I will give you rest. Matthew 11, 28. Now, verse 12. Why grace teaches? <clears throat> there are, there's misunderstanding. A lot of misunderstandings about grace. And uh, one of them is that grace is just, uh, it, it just applies all over to every sin under all circumstances. Don't worry about it. That was the attitude of those that Paul had to Romans 6. Shall, shall we sin more than grace may abound? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Do you remember what Paul said to that? God forbid. Jesus didn't come to give you a license to sin. He came to free you from sin. So grace teaches us something. It's not a grace if it doesn't have instruction in it. You can't even receive it until you're educated about it. You can't even receive it until you know who Jesus is and what he means and what he requires. You see, grace is connected to teaching, always. But teaching, what about teaching? Teaching us that. All right, first, one, first part is, um, have you ever planted a garden in a new spot? I'm not much of a gardener, but my dad really believed in it, you know? And he had his field hands, my brother and me, you know? <laughs> uh, so one year he said, we're going to plant a garden out here. And there never been a garden there before. Guess what? Had a lot of rocks in it. Had some bushes and trees and stumps. And before we could ever plant a single seed, guess what we had to do? Throw the rocks out, cut the, cut the trees, burn the stumps. Before your life could be what God wants it to be, you've got to clean out some stuff. Or if you had a stage. My kids were involved in drama growing up. So we've been around some stages. So you had a play, and the play's over, and all the props are still on the stage, and it's time the next weekend for another play to start. You can't just have that play with all those old props there, because everybody will be thinking, well, that... Those lines don't match those props. You know, it doesn't make any, you gotta get rid of all the props and put the new ones in. That's what you gotta do in a person's life. That's what repentance is. So let's see that. Uh, verse 12, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. So that's the negative. 
denying ungodliness of one another. What's ungodliness? Two things. Anything that does not glorify God. There are three primary categories. Unbelief. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. It's not 14 1. Number two, on this, um, <clears throat> profanity. Profaning the name of God. That's in the Bible. And then anything that is not like God. God is love. So hate is ungodly. God is true. So a lie is ungodly. So anything that's not like God, you got to deny that. Don't do that. And worldly lust. This, this is defined uh, three different ways. One is sinful affections. That's how we usually use the word. Lust after uh, sexual lust is how we often use it. And the Bible talks about that. Um, Galatians 5 19, this, the the works of the flesh start off with sexual sins. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, the sins that are listed in the Corinthians start off with sexual sins. There's a lot of sexual sins. In fact, that's what the Gentiles were known for. They were driven by their desires. That's Romans 1. But it doesn't only mean that. It can mean vicious desires. It can mean I'm going to get you back. This is the last thing I ever did. It can be. I'm going to hide in the bushes and hit you over the head and take the wall. It can be. I'm going to stab you in the back and climb over you to that VP chair. Where with us? Anything that's like this world, like God. If you want a parallel verse, it's First John two fifteen, which says that there are three avenues of sin: the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, pride of life. Now, lust of the flesh are tied to the desires of the flesh. Eating, drinking, sexual desires, those are lusts of the flesh. And God has given us a way for all of those to be properly appeased. But it has to be within His boundaries. Then, eyes. Well, sometimes they bleed over. You know, you can use your eyes to lust after the flesh. But primarily what this word means is materialism. I see it, I want it. You know, I get on the, I got in trouble for saying this one time, but I don't say it right. <laughs> yeah. I get on the Amazon shop, you know, and I'm every night I'm going down all the sales and I'm there's nothing wrong with Amazon. There's nothing wrong with things on sale. That's the part I didn't say last night. I've been trying. <laughs> but if my life is all about possessions. What I can buy, what I can possess, what I can show off, show off those, what I can display. That's what my life is about. That's not it. I was reading from First Peter three. I teach you First Peter right now. And uh, one through seven, one through six talks about the godly woman, not with braided hair or gold or costly array, but the hidden man of heart. Well, that's just as true of a man as it is a woman. But we say there, a woman married to a non-Christian, how are you going to lead to Christ? Not by external things. 
You're going to win by showing Christ in your life and what change he's made in your life that you'll want it. But the emphasis there, not external things. It's not wrong to wear gold, wedding rings, not wrong to have a necklace, not wrong to... But somebody says, well, it says we're gold, but it also says apparel. <laughs> so if I'm not, if those are absolutes, then I couldn't wear any clothes. <laughs> you know? so, so they're not absolutes, but it's a matter of emphasis. Now let's move into the uh, world of those. Now the positive. So we cleaned out the field. Now what are we going to put back in the field? Right? Uh, righteously, godly, and certainly righteously and godly. I'm going to go through this real fast. I'll just look at the clock. But uh, there, are, there are two statements I'll make with each one. Now I don't mean to expand on these much to help, help us understand what they are. One is soberly. That's discharging duty to self. When you get home tonight, if you're not too tired, read Colossians 3. And these three, soberly, righteously, and godly, are in Colossians 3. Colossians 3, 5 through 10 is sober. That is, developing my character. Then uh, righteousness, uh, the first, there are three directions here. The first one is inward. Sober. Developing my character. That's who I am with God. Who I am with nobody's life. That's integrity. Number two is righteousness. That's discharging duty to others. So you've got an inward direction, an outward direction, and the third direction is upward, God. So character is the first one. Reputation is the second one. Third one is my heart. Because the Lord looks on my heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7. Uh, Proverbs 23, 7. Now, let's talk about what grace and gender is in the loft invitation, since you got that terrible clock right there. <laughs> uh, who gave himself for us. Now let's look at verse 13. What grace and genders? Looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Looking for it. That word means to be expecting, desiring. Oh, I hope Jesus comes back to heaven. Oh, not me today. I'm so excited. I wonder how many people think about that. Um, there are. You know, maybe they're in bad circumstances, back surgery all the time, and maybe they're, you know. But really spiritual people think about that. And I'm not saying I've known them yet. But don't want to be there. Jesus will come back today. Now, <clears throat> because he may come back today, he gave himself for forgiveness from all iniquity, purified himself with peculiar people's also good works. So that means that I, I'm in expectation, I'm in purity because I'm living to be ready to be presented to him, and then I'm zealous of good works. Now, you came here on a Monday night to a creature that went over both services yesterday. And you came back in. And some of you drove a bit, I don't know how far, but some of you drove a distance to be here. You gotta go home and get up to work tomorrow, school tomorrow. That tells me I'm preaching to people that are above, cut above, that are spiritually interested in, in the word of God. I'm not going to come down when you like a ton of bricks, but I'm going to say, 
that I got some meetings for the purpose of awakening us and rekindling the fire and making me want to go to heaven more than I've ever wanted to go to And getting together with good people, singing good songs, and listening to scripture preach. If that don't set a fire going in my heart, what would? What would? I'm moving into our last point. We talked about grace in the life of Jesus, talked about grace in the church, but let's talk about grace in your life. Go with me to Ephesians 2. This is your last text. <clears throat> Ephesians 2, we mentioned earlier, is the high water mark about grace in the New Testament. And what we do normally is just quote, which I did, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you say through faith. That's a wonderful text. It needs to be preached. That's right. But before we get to verse 8, we should start verse 4. So read with me. And it shows us how to get in grace. You know, the grace of God is bigger than all men, but will all men be saved? Jesus said, Few there be that find it. Matthew 7 13. I don't know the percentages, but I know a greater percentage when Jesus comes back will not be in grace compared to those that are. Because there's few in me. Years and maybe said 13 That doesn't give me any joy at all, is that? And that's 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 why I'm preaching. And that's why you're talking to your friends. Teach about as we want as many people to be in grace when it's over as possible. Now, how do you get in grace then? So saved by grace. Wonderfully, but how do I get there? If everybody's not there, then obviously there's something that's different between those that are and some and those that aren't. So back up and start reading it in verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us. That's the reason we have grace, is because of mercy, love, and kindness. All three of those are in this context. Even when we were dead in sins, well, that's where I am before I find. The truth, before I follow Jesus, I'm dead in sins. Dead just means separated. I'm not spiritually alive. Hath quickened us together with Christ. Quickened means made alive. So I was dead and he made me alive. But at what time did he make me alive? Was that some kind of direct operation on my heart? Some vision in the night? Some better felt than told experience? When did that happen? Well, keep reading. Keep reading. And hath raised us up together. What's that? There is a resurrection coming of the body from the grave. Is it that one? It couldn't be that one because we haven't experienced it yet. And those that Paul was writing to had not experienced that one yet. And he had not at that time. So that's not the resurrection. What's the other resurrection in the New Testament? Romans 6, 3 and 4. We are baptized into his death and resurrected to walk in newness of life. You know, when, when Jesus died, this is beautiful. And, and you, you miss it if, if you uh, practice sprinkling or pouring for baptism because it doesn't fit. But immersion does. So when Jesus died, what did they do? Took his body down, put him in 
Joseph's tomb, rolled that rock over. And he was encased in the tomb. He was buried. The angel moved that stone Sunday morning. He didn't move the stone so Jesus could get out. He was already out. He moved the stone so people could see in. So they would know he was gone. And the women looked in and he was just a great one. You know, no lie. So, death buried, resurrected. I die to sin. What do you do with a dead person? You bury them. What do you do with a spiritually dead? You bury them in water. But you don't leave them under the water. They're resurrected to walk in this life. See, Jesus died, we died. Jesus was buried, we, we, we are buried. Jesus was resurrected, we are resurrected. That's how we get in grace. It's right here in the context. It's not hard to see. Now, <clears throat> that ties in with a lot of verses. Like, for instance, Acts 2 38. They said, Men, men, what shall we do? They're pricking their hearts. They knew they had sinned. They fell away. And Peter said, There's nothing you can do. You killed Jesus, the Son of God. He was innocent. You're guilty. And you're lost. <laughs> Is that what your Bible says? Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Remission means forgiveness. It's a financial change. We talked about the stains of sin. What about Acts 26 16? Saul of Tarsus was a sinner. Killed Stephen, did a lot of damage, hurt a lot of people. And he said, uh, Who art thou, Lord? And Jesus. Oh, what the hell do you do? Go into the city. We told you what, what you must do. That's not what you must do. Peter sent the preacher. Preacher didn't want to go. He knew about Saul. So this is probably a trick. He came over here to arrest us. He's going to get me. And he said, he said, no, you go. And he did. And when he got there, you know what he said? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. Call on the Lord. When he washed away his sins, who wrote Ephesians 2 8? Paul. When did he know and learn about grace? When did he experience it? Acts 9. Acts 22 16. Now, nothing's changed since the New Testament. Same Lord is saving sinners today, just like the was then. Now, the only thing's changed is the sin. So there's a whole new crop of us who need grace. So the Lord's invitation is extended. If, you're, if you've never been in grace, why not tonight? Be resurrected and become a part of the body of Christ. If you have been in grace, but you've fallen because of sin, why not return? We'll pray with you and God will forgive you and give you that back to good, to good favor. Why not come and stand on this side? Why keep Jesus waiting? Wait.